0: Hi, welcome to Antioch, Dallas. I'm John, and I just want to let you know about a few things happening here in the next few weeks. First, we have World Mandate. That's our annual Global Missions Conference. This year, Dallas is a satellite location. That'll be January 27th and 28th. There'll be live worship and great speakers like Francis Chan, Tracy Evans, and Jimmy Seibert. You can find out more information and register online at our website. As we are in the midst of Advent, and we look forward to Christmas and celebrating the birth of Jesus, want to let you know about our holiday schedule coming up. On Christmas Eve, we'll have two services here at the church. And then on Christmas Day and then New Year's Day, we will not be having services. And so we want to encourage you on Christmas Day to just spend time with your family and remembering what Christmas is all about. And then on New Year's Day, spend time thinking forward to the new year. Spend some time with the Lord in prayer and listening. And we just want to get ready for all that God has for us as individuals and as a church in 2017. Community is a huge part of who we are here at Antioch Dallas and we believe that life groups aren't just a place where we receive and grow in our faith, but it's also a place where we all come together to give and help others grow and also fulfill our purpose in life. If you'd like to be a part of that kind of community, you can fill out the contact card in the seat in front of you or you can email us at lifegroups at antiochdallas.org. Our life groups will be taking a break for the month of December, but we're starting back January 15th. If you'd like to get connected in community here, let us know. There's no better way to start your new year. Those are your announcements. I'm so thankful for you, Antioch Dallas, and get ready to hear a great message from our pastor, Zach Daniel. Well, I got some good
1: news for you to start uh, the the, the message here. If you don't know, we're in the process of moving church buildings, and we've been in a financial campaign called That We May as we're seeking to raise $150,000 to fund this move and all the Um, man stuff that we believe God's calling us to through this super exciting so we had our first giving day October the 30th we had our second giving day last Sunday December the 4th we have our third giving day January the 8th so after our first giving Sunday we raised $30,000 which is awesome so 30 of the 150 this last giving Sunday drum roll please oh you're good you're good okay drum roll stop Guys, we're up to $82,000. That's amazing. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. When our accountant sent us the the number, I was like, wow. And then I got a call from someone last night saying, hey, uh, you know, I've got a check coming to you. I missed the, you know, the day, but I want to make sure you know it's on the way. Move this up to $82,000. So super excited. Way to go. Way, I mean, way, way to go! Like you guys need to realize that's awesome, and I want you to know it's the story behind the, the numbers that I think is like what's so worth celebrating. It's not like one person wrote a check for eighty thousand dollars and the rest of us put in like two dollars. No, it's been like throughout our community, God's moving on people's hearts, and you guys are responding. And giving generously. And I'm just, I'm blown away. I'm so excited. So we should celebrate today all that God is doing through that, right? We've got, you know, we're shooting for 150, so we've come a long way. We've got a good ways to go, but I'm super excited. I just want us to be praying into uh, leading up to our last giving day, January the 8th. Just God, we're looking to you to provide through us and through others for this deal that you're doing. But man, that's, what a way to celebrate, it's so awesome, so way to go, really excited about that. Second thing that I want to ask is, if you are a volunteer, if you're one of our volunteer leaders, uh, if you're new, you may not know this, but most of our church is run and built off volunteers uh, leading and investing. If you're one of those volunteers, I'd just like to ask you to stand up, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, so stand up, you can't get out of it, I know who you are, I have the list, I'll call you out. Stand up. We want to honor you. Okay, if you're still sitting, you know I know who you are. All right, let's clap for these people. So thankful for them. Okay, you can be seated. At the end of every semester, we do a whole bunch of parties to celebrate our volunteer leaders. And I just want you to know the the reason why... We focus so much on volunteer leaders is not just to get stuff done, but we believe that Jesus has brought us into a spiritual family, but he's also placed a calling on each one of us. He's given us a ministry. In First Peter, the book of the Bible we're going through, Peter puts it like this, that we've been made priests, that every single person, every single follower of Jesus, there's a calling to be a part of God's mission. And we're excited about empowering people to step into the thing that God's made them to do. And the thing that they're like, man, this is the ministry God's given me. I just want to celebrate and honor that. Our church is not built on the giftings of a few, but it's built on the sacrifices of many. We have about 450 people, maybe 500 who would call Antioch Dallas their church home Of those, we have about 100 to 125 that are volunteering, leading, discipling, serving, pastoring, reaching out each and every week. So that's an incredible percentage. It's amazing. I just want to honor you volunteers. And if you're here and you're like, man, I'm thinking about the new year, I want to do something with my faith. I want to do something maybe more than I've ever done. Just I want to make an impact with what Jesus has given me, what he's done in me. I want to give that away to someone else. I want to be a part of God's mission. I want to sow a seed for you today for you to consider over the Christmas kind of holiday. If you'll look in the next steps card in the seat back in front of you. If you'll take one of these out actually. Take one out. Take a look at this card. All right, that requires participation. I saw one person move. So I said, take one out. Come on, let's participate. Let's have a little fun. Take the card out. You can humor me. And look on here. Maybe we've got three people with it now. That would be okay. I know you guys are with me. If you'll notice on there, there's a little option here for serving in the church or serving within our city. If you're thinking kind of this Christmas break, that you're like, man, I want to do something with my faith. God's calling me to, to take action. I would encourage you to fill out that Connect card and to put on there, hey, I'd like to get some more information about what would it be like To uh, invest in the kids of our church and of our community? What would it be like to serve the homeless? What would it be like to be on the welcome home team or the worship team or any of those to get some more information? Because we want to help you step into the calling of God on your life and your calling as a part of this community. Two that I want to feature to you are our kids' ministry. It's one of the most valuable things that we do. We don't do child care uh, where we just kind of put the kids back there and, and hope they make it. We believe that kids have a calling on their lives. Yeah. That they don't have the junior Holy Spirit, they have the Holy Spirit. And that God has a plan and a purpose for them. So when we're doing kids ministry, we are discipling and training future world changers. And we value that. And so if you're like, man, I, I, I want to do something, I want to encourage you to jump in with the kids ministry. I was so fired up Uh, two weeks ago hearing testimonies of what's going on. I I was like, man, I'm gonna leave up here. I'm gonna go back there because that's, man, I wanna be in on the action. So I wanna encourage you that one. Number two, welcome home team. Uh, We value when people come to this church that they experience the love of Christ. And so often that happens through tangibly being welcomed by people. And if you're like, man, that has changed my life, I wanna be a part of welcoming others. I wanna encourage you to sign up For that team. So, two kind of seeds to sow your way as we head into the Christmas break. And with that, will you turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2? We're going to pick up there in our series on strong grace. We're going to read verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8 together. Or I'll read it and you can read along, but not out loud. That would be a little clunky. Okay, so here we go 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, just to refresh your memory, this is a letter from the Apostle Peter, one of the original disciples, writing to this group of Christians, and he's talking to them about the grace of God that they've received in Jesus. And we sit 2,000 years later letting the Holy Spirit speak to us out of these very words, teaching us what we've received in Jesus. Peter has said that in Jesus, that these Christians, that you and I, that we've received a new name, a new identity. That we've received a new calling beyond futility into God's purposes. That we've received a new power source. That you don't have to do life on your own, but you can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You can be empowered by the grace of God. That in Jesus, we've received the abundant generosity of God. We've been the objects of his great mercy and his forever faithfulness. That we've been given a living hope that does not disappoint, will not let you down, that you can rejoice in. That's what we've been given. And now we're seeing he's turning the corner a little bit, and he's talking about Jesus, this one through whom this grace comes. And he describes him using an Old Testament prophecy from the Old Testament, talking about Jesus. And he's saying that in Jesus, that we have a cornerstone a chosen and precious cornerstone. A cornerstone was kind of the anchor piece of building a building, the stone from which every other stone was set in place off of, that Jesus is a chosen and precious cornerstone that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That when we receive Jesus, when we believe in him, when we put our trust in him, that we won't be put to shame Actually, the opposite. Turn to verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. So when you receive Jesus, you experience honor, not shame. Then he goes on to say, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So it's saying, for those who accept Jesus, those who receive Jesus, there's honor. At the same time, there are going to be those who reject Jesus, who deny him. He describes them like this. He says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling. Jesus is someone that we can stumble over, that we can say, ooh, I don't I don't agree with him. I don't like that. That's not for me. And you read through the Bible, and all of us know people who have not received Jesus. He's become a stumbling stone for them. He's become a rock of offense. In fact, people get offended with Jesus. I mean, you read the gospel, you see in the end they're hanging him to a cross. You look through history. You look through your own life. You and I have all met people who are offended with Jesus. And then it closes he says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Wow, this is like a, a lot of, of um, weighty concepts in a short passage of scripture talking about Jesus and specifically talking about the exclusivity of Christ. That there is a choosing or a receiving of Jesus that leads to honor. Or there's a denying or rejecting of Jesus that leads to dishonor. That's a challenging word uh, in, in, in the society that Peter was writing into. That was a challenging word. They lived in a very pluralistic society where people were worshiping all kinds of gods. So this teaching would have really challenged these early Christians. And I know that for us here in this room, in our generation, it's equally it's challenging. But I want to help us walk through this, and I want, I want to do that by, by giving a, a little story. Uh, we have Christmas coming up. We're all aware of that. When you are a child, you begin to develop a strategy for Christmas, or at least I did, and I bet you did as well. You begin to see presents kind of gathering under the tree. Aunts and uncles, cousins, grandparents come, or you go to their house, and you begin to see other presents and you start to look for which ones have your name tag on it. And then of those that have your name tag on it, which one, you kind of begin to rank them before opening them. You begin to rank them in your mind. And you begin to look for what, what's the thing on there that you might have asked for for Christmas. And then what's the thing that maybe your like crazy uncle you know, brought to you from that garage sale that's always like, you get it and you're like, um, thank you, you know, it's the one that your mom is like, pushing you in the ribs to make sure you say thank you on the, on the gift that you don't know what to do with. Now, only a few of you laughed. I, I know that this happens, right? And so you begin to develop a strategy going into Christmas, much like if you play fantasy football, a draft, where you're thinking, how can I open these presents in a certain order to achieve a desired outcome? And either you go for the things that you know are going to be the good presents, maybe the one from your, your rich aunt or your rich uncle, right? You're going for those first. And then you kind of work down the ladder to the ones that you're like, oh, this is probably not going to be uh, something that I actually uh, really care about. Maybe it's, you know. Or you work up. You start with the ones that you know are going to be a little bit off, a little bit out there. You don't have much faith for, much hope for. And then you wait till the back end to open the ones that you know that's where the good stuff is, right? You begin to develop this strategy for Christmas, or at least I did. And if you think that's weird, I, it's what I did. And as an adult, you know what? Sometimes I might still. Do that. True confessions here this morning. Now, as we read through First Peter, we can operate much like that. I mean, we've read some amazing passages of Scripture that you look at, and you're like, wow, the generosity of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, living hope. Who, Those are great presents. I want to open those up and get those things out first, and this is awesome. These are great gifts of grace. You come to this passage of Scripture and it becomes a little bit like, ooh, I don't really know what to do with that. Kind of like that present from the, from the person. She's like, mm, don't know what this is going to be like. And so we can be tempted to ignore this, to skip over this, to wish, oh, I wish this wasn't in the Bible. Like, could we just stick with, like, not the stuff where, like, you believe and there's honor, you don't believe and there's dishonor and shame. Like, let's, let's stay away from, from that kind of stuff, right? I mean, if we're honest, That's what we do. What I hope to do today, though, is to show you why this, the exclusivity of Christ, is a really good gift, that it's a present you want to open, you want to enjoy, that will literally transform the world for the better if we receive it and let it shape us. This is a gift to get really excited about. And I realize at first, second, or third glance, you might be like, ooh, I don't know about that. But give me a few minutes to walk you through this and I bet by the end you're going to see or at least be challenged with some new food for thought on why this might be really good news. So here's what I wanna do to help us walk through. Number one, I wanna talk about what the exclusivity of Christ is and what it is not. So let's clearly define our terms. Number two, I wanna talk about what bothers us about this teaching. Like why is this hard for us to take? And then number three, I want to point out why it is actually a gift. Okay, so we're going to go through those three things. Let's start out by defining terms, what this is and what this is not. So when we're talking about the exclusivity of Christ, what Peter is teaching here, that in Jesus, he is the only pathway to receive the grace of God. Receive him and you're honored, reject him and you're dishonored. Right, what are we saying? We are not saying... So let's be clear. We are not saying that Jesus and the salvation that God brings is only for a small group of people who happen to be born at the right time, in the right place, with the right education level or income level or skin color or anything like that. That's not what we're saying. So when we're talking about exclusivity, it's not like, oh, these are just, you know, you just happen to be born in this country at this time in the world with these type of parents, and that's how you get the salvation of God. When we look at the Bible, it's actually a very different story that God's desire is not limited like that, but that his heart is for the whole world. So let's start at the beginning of the scripture and work our way through so that we make sure we see what this is is, okay, and what this isn't. So the story begins, God creates the world. God creates mankind, people like you and me, Adam and Eve. He makes them in the image of God. They're made to know God. They're made to reflect the glory of God. They're given a purpose to be a part of God's mission, and everything is right. They are flourishing. Life is flourishing. God is honored. Adam and Eve decide to turn from their created identity, from their created purpose, from, their, from this relationship they have with God, they say, hey, you're not going to be our king. You're not going to be our creator. We're going to be our own kings and queens. We're going to decide what's right and what's wrong. We're going to decide the way to live the purpose for life. You're not going to be our creator. We're going to create life on our own terms. We're going to find our own meaning and our own purpose, and that's what we're doing. That's essentially what they choose when the devil tempts them Right, They choose, they rebel from the king and creator, and they turn and they go their own way. When they make that choice, a whole slew of ramifications or consequences is unleashed through that choice. We see that most clearly in the beginning pages of Scripture in the way their kids relate to one another. And you see Cain killing Abel over jealousy. Right, You see the brokenness and the hatred and the pain and the sin when we turn from God and do life on our own terms, immediately destroying the family. From there, as you read through the scriptures, you see that this sin is not limited just to that one decision, that one context, but it begins to to spread through everyone. And lives and cities and nations are built on this divisiveness, on this sin, on this rebellion. God does not leave the world abandoned, does not disappear and just say, look, you just go, you know, have it your own way. God moves in power to redeem a rebellious world. We see in Genesis chapter 11, a few short chapters into scripture, a few short chapters into the rebellion, God pursues a man named Abraham, not because Abraham was particularly godly, not because Abraham was particularly moral or had it all together, but God comes to Abraham in God's grace, out of God's generosity, out of God's mercy, out of God's compassion, and he initiates with Abraham. This is an important piece for understanding the entire story of scripture and understanding what we're talking about today. So if you look at Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham and he speaks to him, his desire to bless him. Genesis chapter 12, verse two, he says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God speaks to him and says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to pour my grace out on you, much like you and I have been reading in 1 Peter about God pouring his grace out. Abraham, I'm going to pour my grace out on you. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. I'm going to fill you up so that you might pour out and be a blessing. Now note what he says next. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Look at this last sentence. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the blessing that God was pouring out on Abraham was not just for Abraham's own life. It was not just for his kids and his wife and his family in their immediate context. It wasn't just for uh, even for his nation. But that God's desire in moving through Abraham and pouring out his grace on Abraham was what? That every family in the world would be blessed. So God's pouring out his grace, his redemption, with a view to every family, experiencing the blessing and the salvation and the grace of God. That's the call on Abraham's life. As you read through the Scripture, as you read through the Old Testament, you see that this is God's purpose. Now people, these people that God has called, so often turn away, like Adam and Eve did, from that calling, from that purpose. They say, well, I'm actually more interested in my own life I'm actually more interested in my own happiness. I'm actually more interested in my own way, right? And yet God is not thwarted or stopped. He continues to reach out to his people. He continues to pour out his grace with a view toward redemption, redeeming, and that redemption not being limited to a particular family or group of people or ethnicity, but his heart is for all. In fact, God begins to speak to the prophet Isaiah, so fast forward about midway through your Bible. If you're flipping through the pages, God begins to speak to a prophet named Isaiah about one who was to come. We know now that's Jesus, the sent one, the Messiah, the one we're about to celebrate at Christmas. And God speaks about Jesus' mission. Look in Isaiah 49.6. God says this, speaking about Jesus. It is too light a thing that you, Jesus, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So, Jesus, I'm going to send you, but it's not just for the, the, the family of Abraham is not just for them. That's too light a thing. I've actually got a bigger mission for you. I'm sending you for them, but I'm also sending you, I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Catch that phrase again. My salvation reach to the end of the earth. So again, we see God's heart is huge and motivated for every family Every background, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation on the earth. And that he's sending Jesus to bring that salvation, to bring that redemption to all. Keep going. Jesus pulls together his disciples and he tells them in Matthew 24, Look at the mission he passes on to them, Matthew 24, 14. He says, this gospel, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed, where? Throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we see the heartbeat of God through the scriptures is not limited to one person here or one group there, but it's for all. And the redemption that God is working in Jesus is not confined to Americans born in Texas in this generation, but it's for the whole world. It's for all. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, after he's told them to pray for everyone, now he tells them the why behind the what. He says, this is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. There's that all people, all families, all nations, all people to be saved, and come to the saving knowledge of the truth. So when we're talking about the exclusivity of Christ, we're not limiting it to a particular political party, a particular skin color, a particular nation in which you were born or not born, but we see that God's desire from the beginning to the end is for the families of the world to experience the salvation, the renewal, the redemption, that he's pursuing. Okay? So that's what exclusivity of Christ is not. Now let's be clear about what it is. And I want to read to you a quote from seminary professor Jason Allen. Make sure I get his name right. Jason K. Allen. He defines it like this. Historic Christianity through its creedal formations, through its creedal formulations, meaning The scriptures, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, historic Christianity has affirmed the exclusivity of the gospel. In fact, this was Jesus' self assessment when he unequivocally asserted, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. By exclusivity of the gospel, we mean only those who personally, consciously, explicitly, and singularly confess Jesus Christ as Lord can possess eternal life. So let's consider these qualifiers more closely. Personally, salvation comes to us individually when one follows Christ. No one gains eternal life because of someone else's faith or by his or her affiliation with a family, a church, an ethnic or national group. Each sinner must come to repent of his or her sins and believe the gospel personally. What does that mean? That means that it's not your parents' faith that saves you all as born into the right family. It doesn't mean that you belong to a certain church or that you go to that church or that you were born at a certain time period or whatnot. It says that it has to be personally. Each person, each sinner, must come to repent of his or her sins and believe the gospel personally, consciously to inherit the kingdom One must do more than reflect the ethic of Christ. One must consciously embrace him, knowingly and intentionally following Jesus. What that means is that it's not, well, that person doesn't believe in Jesus, but man, they sure act this. They they do this and this and this, so I'm sure they're going to be all right in the end. No, that's not the gospel. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that each person must come to Christ, right? Each person must receive him consciously, knowingly explicitly. One's faith must be placed in God's Son, Jesus Christ, not just generically in God. So saving faith is not just, well, I believe in God, you know, and I believe the, you know, uh, the man upstairs is out there, and I try and do good. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying explicitly, just like Peter declared in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And singularly, faith in Jesus Christ alone saves. Saving faith must be placed in him alone. We do not add Jesus to our portfolio of faith objects. That's funny right there. We do not add Jesus to our portfolio of faith objects. Christianity is not a both and proposition. It is an either or. Okay? Okay? So we've got, this is what the exclusivity of Christ is. Now, I realize that this is a difficult teaching for us. I realize that this is like, ooh, again, I'm not sure why we wanted to open this gift. So I want to identify, what's the reason for that? Like, why does this, why why are we not standing up on our feet and cheering right now? And we're all a little bit like, hmm, is this really what we want to do around Christmas? Okay, here's why. Here's why it bothers us. I bet you're in one of these three camps maybe all three. Zach, isn't it arrogant to have an exclusive view like this? Like that out of the billions of people in the world, uh, that, that you have the inside scoop on truth, that you have an exclusive claim on, well, this is the way it really is. Isn't that really like arrogant? And then number two, isn't that really divisive? Like, isn't it like when people get into, like, just this is the way that it is, like, doesn't that divide us? And isn't there enough division in the world around us? Like, maybe we should focus on something that, like, brings us together. And number three, isn't this really uncomfortable? Like, if you believe this, isn't that going to put you in a lot of uncomfortable conversations and situations? Because if this is true, then I would almost feel like I, I, I like, had to get out of my comfort zone and talk to people about Jesus. Because if this was true, they would really need to know. It would really matter. Right? It's those three things that I bet most of us, we can find ourselves somewhere in one of those deals. So let's start with the first one. Man, isn't it arrogant to have exclusive views? You know, I think there's a lot of, of merit, at least on the surface, to this. Like, we, we're just like, who are we to, like, I don't know, tell everyone else they're wrong? But let me, let me point out maybe the most uh, inclusive view that we could articulate and it's one that I even heard this week as I was talking with someone uh, about Jesus and it's the idea of hey you know don't all kind of the, the roads lead up the same mountain you know that that religion over there and this person's belief over there and that person didn't all kind of get us to the same place maybe an illustration would help it make sense if you can see put up the picture behind me this is a common story There are six blind men who go out from their city one day and they're together and they stumble into something, they don't know what it is. You can tell by the drawing it's an elephant. But remember, they're blind and they go out and they they stumble into something and they begin to, to touch it and they're trying to figure out what it is. And you know, you see one touches the tail and another one the leg and another one the ear and the tusk and the trunk. And so each one would have a different experience, a different description. They come back to their, their village, they're talking to one another. Guess what I found out there? I found this thing, and one of them begins to describe the tail, this, you know, uh, the, the, how, just long and, and had, you know, swung around. And another one is describing the, the leg of the elephant. It's not, it's not swinging around like this thing was really sturdy and wide and, and strong. And another one describing the tusk, and it was like, there was like pointing like it could almost hurt you. And another one was like, no, I, it wasn't like that. It was like, and he's describing the trunk, and he's like, it wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. And they begin to argue about what they experienced, and they begin to get frustrated with one another. No, I know what I saw, right? And then someone comes along, the story goes, who can see, and tells to the blind man, he's like, hey, actually all of your experiences were valid, you all did find that, but it, it was an elephant that you found, right? And each of you experienced like a different piece or a different part of the same larger being. And so the way the story goes is now the person who can see comes along and shares that information. These blind men now, oh, so really we're not divided. We're together. We had a similar experience. And so instead of fighting, they, they come to a place of agreement. Right? It's a common illustration to point out, like maybe isn't that the way we should do things or, or think about God and religion and the things that are that are Right? And again, at first glance, it does have some, some merit, but I want to point out something to you. You realize the key to the story is that someone needed to come along who could see to explain it. And that person had to have unique insight that none of the other people possessed to be able to stand back and see the whole and say, oh, this is an elephant. And then to be able to communicate that to each person in such a way that they now change their view from the kind of narrow experience they had to this person who could see to the way that they saw the world and what they said, this is the right way. So when you think about it, even that most inclusive of a view that we could come up with is actually exclusive. It requires a person having unique knowledge that no one else possessed. And then communicating that knowledge in such a way that people change their opinion, change their position to align with the person who could see. My point in sharing that is everyone has exclusive views. Everyone. Even the most inclusive view we could draw up is actually exclusive. So when we say, well, isn't it arrogant to have exclusive views? It's like, well, everyone has those. You can't find a person without those. So then number two leads us to the the problem. Well, you know, okay, everyone has those exclusive views, but aren't views like that divisive? And I would, again, I would acknowledge that so many times our views of what's right and what's wrong are divisive. Let's use an example we've been walking through as a country. If you are a political conservative your viewpoint is, man, if all those liberals could just see things the way that I see them, then the world would be a better place. And so we get on Facebook and we get so fired up about those inflammatory stories that you're liking and sharing, and you're like, just if my liberal friends could see this and understand, then we'd be right. And if you're politically liberal in here, You're like, man, if my conservative, if they would just open their eyes and they would see like I see, if they could come to arrive at my knowledge, then the world would be a better place. So you get on Facebook and you find those inflammatory stories and you start sharing them. Here we are, here we are. Just if you could read this, right? And then the moderates like, man, if everybody could just be like me and just have moderate views. So you find the moderate news sites and, and you're sharing, those, you know, it's just the way we are. We get divided into our little camps and, and we define ourselves by who we're against. And if everyone could just come our way, right, that's the heart of what, what bothers us about exclusive views or one of the, the things. Now, let me challenge you with consider Christianity. Consider the claims of the gospel that we've been reading about. If you align yourself there with that exclusive view, the centerpiece of your life is not proving everyone else, if they could just see like you and they could just be like you, then the world would be in their place. No, the gospel doesn't come through works or through some through enlightened position that you stumbled onto. It comes through grace. That is, Jesus who gave himself for us not you figuring it out. So you know what that does when you receive it? It actually makes you humble. Cuz you're like uh this wasn't my own doing. This wasn't kind of I just studied and I'm smarter than everybody else and I was just the one that figured it out. No, you realize it's a gift from God. And so you're deeply humbled. So then when people disagree with you or see things differently, you view them with your own humility. And you're like I, I mean How did I get to where I was? The grace of God, I don't know. And the centerpiece of your action with people who disagree with you, who argue with you, who who stand against you, who don't believe what you believe or live the way that you think should live is actually the crucified king who gave himself to bless and serve those who hated him those who rejected him, those who were against him. And at one time, that included every person in this room. So our centerpiece doesn't become, man, if I could just get everybody over to my side, and when I go to Christmas uh, holiday and there's this family member that looks on this website and argues about this, I'm just gonna get so worked up. You realize the centerpiece is not that view, but it's Jesus who worked to bless and serve those who are against him. So you don't get insecure. You don't get angry. You honor people who disagree with you. You work to love them. You work to bless them. You work for their welfare because Jesus is the centerpiece of this explicit view of the gospel. Now, think about what would happen if as a community, if you and I subscribe to that, if we embrace the deep humility that the gospel brings, that this exclusive view of the gospel brings. Think about if we embraced the crucified king at the center, the focal point of our faith, how would we live in our city, in our families, in the world? Now now you might start to see, oh, I see why this might be a gift to be unwrapped. But the third objection I actually find is is one of the strongest, well, Zach, wouldn't that make me really uncomfortable? Because that means I would need to, like, I don't know, get out of comfortable situations and talk to someone, or share Jesus with someone, or bless someone who persecutes me, or or be kind to someone who rejects me, that I need to just, and I'm like, yeah, there's no way around that. But even that's good news, because you are made for more your own comfort. You are made in the image of God. God made you in his image to reflect his glory and you have a purpose from God that's bigger than just being comfortable for the moment or being happy in a moment. You're made to be a part of what God, the king of the universe, is doing in the world, the redemption plan for all of history. And so when you see the exclusivity of Christ, you see this not only, um, this, this frees you From the tyranny of comfort and the prison of just I've got to be happy all the time to I'm made for a purpose. God's called me to demonstrate his love radically, to step out of my comfort zone and to be a part of what he's doing in the world. That's what you're made for. And that's where true life is. So now all of a sudden this passage that we started out with, that was like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable. It's going to make you uncomfortable, but you start to see, man, this is a gift to be unwrapped and to be savored and to be rejoiced in and to be centered around, and not just to leave it after Christmas, but to build my life around this and let it shape me as an individual and shape my family and shape my community. And what would God do through a people that embrace this? I'll tell you what he'd do. He'd transform the world. I want to invite you to stand, and if I get the band to come on up, as we sing this last song, we're going to sing about Christ being the cornerstone. We're going to sing this scripture, and I want to encourage you to let the goodness of this word, the goodness of this gift, touch your heart and touch your lips, and let's rejoice in all that Jesus is together. Jesus, thank you that the exclusivity of Christ is a good and precious gift. God, thank you that through receiving it, we embrace deep humility. God, we embrace a life with a crucified king at the center, and so we bless those who persecute us. We do good to those who would do evil to a sort. Our primary focus in life is not convincing people of this agenda or that, but demonstrating your love and your grace, Lord. And as we receive this, it frees us from being owned by the tyranny of personal comfort and personal happiness that are so fickle, and it allows us to step into the calling of God, a plan bigger than ourselves, that for which we're made for. Thank you for this good gift, Lord. We receive it today with great joy. In Jesus' name.